Hey, welcome to the 120th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, a former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to political analysis to dog fancy essays to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Garrett M. Graff, author of the remarkable new bestselling book, The Only Plane in the Sky, an oral history of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And I'm not going to lie, as a New York native who is in the city on September 11th and throughout the aftermath, Garrett's new book is a toughie. But it's also ridiculously good, precisely researched, and, I'm 100% convinced, an important chronicling of history. So put your serious hat on and buckle up for an informative, important, two writers, Sling and Yang. Garrett, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I, uh, I really appreciate it. I was thinking, saying, we had a lot of trouble connecting here. And it took a while, and I ended up using Skype instead of Ringer. And, you know, reading through your bio, before I talk about your book, which is, is such a heavy weight, you ran Howard Dean's website when he ran for president. And, and it feels like 8,000 years ago. And number one, that Howard Dean ran for president. And number two, that Howard Dean had a website uh, for his presidential campaign. And I just kind of wonder, like, in 2003, 2004, what was it to run a presidential campaign's website? Um, so I was his, uh, I was his webmaster when he was governor and then worked on the web team when he was president, uh, when he was running for president. And, uh, it, it, you know, I was trying to actually explain this to someone the other day because it's just like, it, it feels like talking about the stone age, um, to be talking about like the rise of blogs and, uh, you know, that this was, this was before YouTube launched, this was before Twitter or Facebook or any of those sites launched. And that it, it really was just the dawn of the idea that the internet could be a, you know, interactive place to share individuals' opinions and ideas and, and all of that type of stuff. It's funny that the idea, like, when you were doing this, the idea was someone would go on the internet and they would visit the website, like literally, you're just going to visit the website and read something written on the website. And it's such a foreign idea now. Even homepages, I, I'm not even sure anymore what the place of homepages is on the internet nowadays. And, and back then it was everything. Yes. And sort of part of what was also funny about that was it was just this whole other generation of technology. Um, you know, the hot social media website of the time that we were on the campaign was this uh, site called Orkit, which was sort of the post-Friendster, pre-Facebook uh, social networking site. And it was, uh, you know, it, it is a long forgotten piece of internet history now, but that was the like really cool cutting edge social networking site of 2000, you know, 2003, 2004, where if you were on Orkut, that showed how much cooler you were than someone who was just on Friendster. Did Howard Dean know anything about the internet? Um, he did. Um, uh, you know, I, I was his, as I said, I was his gubernatorial webmaster in when he was governor of Vermont. And, it, you know, the, the sort of funny thing there is when he went on, when we built his first website, which, um, 
it was either 1997 or 1998, he was the last governor in the country to get a website. And so it, it, it was ironic just a few years later that he became known for being such an Internet pioneer and powered so much of his campaign through online donations back during an era when that was an incredibly rare phenomenon. Would he have been a good president? Like, do you look back and think, man, Howard Dean would have been a great president? I, I think it's hard to say, um, especially uh, when you begin to measure against current uh, conditions in the White House. Um uh, you know, he 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 obviously would have been a very different president than uh, than Bush would have been. Um, and part of what sort of is amusing to me about ending up having written this new history of 9-11 it is sort of the idea that it has forced me as someone who dedicated a year of my life to campaigning against President Bush to really reconsider the type of leader that he was himself as president during that first term. You know, I, I think Bush in that first term, uh, you know, comes out a little bit better than history originally imagined that he was going to when we were running against him in 2003, 2004. I actually think one thing that's, that's happened under the Trump presidency, and you may completely disagree, it's caused people to reevaluate politicians who they might have disagreed with solely on policy issues and sort of think, you know, that guy wasn't as bad as I thought he was. Yes. And or at least sort of understanding that sort of uh, there, there is a normal standard deviation of political disagreements where, um, you know, Bush while you might have had policy disagreements with him, you could understand that he really was waking up every day uh, trying to do the right thing for the United States um, and that he was sort of in it for the right motivations, um, which is, which I think is a part of this lesson today uh, when you have a president whose motivations are much more suspect uh, and much more personal than they are national. Here's a here's a big, loaded, juicy one that I bet you thought about. Is Donald Trump president if 9-11 never happened? No, not at all. Not by any stretch of the imagination. It, and I actually, I, I, th this to me was an important part of the motivation for writing this book was to try to capture try to recapture and re-explain to a new generation uh, the, the emotion and the experience of living through 9-11. Because I think one of the things that we forget is, you know, we tell ourselves this sort of much neater and cleaner history of 9-11, you know, that nearly 3,000 people killed, the four planes, the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, Shanksville. And the, and the facts of the day don't really account for the totality of why the nation's leaders made the decisions that they did. And that I, I think in many ways, in order to understand the world that 9-11 created, which, uh, you know, we are still very much wrestling with. And I think Donald Trump is a very significant outcome of the world that 9-11 created 
you have to understand the emotion and the fear and the trauma that the nation experienced on 9-11 in order to understand the actions that we took afterwards. It's a fascinating thing because after 9-11, there was so much of, we can't let this change us. We're not going to let the terrorists change us. We can't let this change who we are as Americans. And it did exactly that. And it was kind of unavoidable, I think, but it did do exactly that. It, it very much did. And it, um, it, it, you know, I think when you look at our national politics and you look at our international geopolitics, it is, you know, very much still a world created by 9-11. And that when you look at the extent of, uh, you know, e even up until this month, you know, the collapse of the Taliban peace talks with the president. I mean, it is just unbelievable the the ways that we are still dealing with the ramifications of that day. I'm going to tell you something that when people say this to me about my books, I hate. And I think you understand. To me, the worst insult you can get about a book is when someone says, oh, yeah, hey, I read your book. I, um, yeah, I got about halfway through. It was good. And you're like, oh, well, thanks. And so your book... I'm about halfway through, and I'm, I'm actually being – but, but I want to be honest with you. I'm a, uh, I was a New Yorker on 9-11. I lived in New York City. A good friend of mine lost his son. I volunteered down at the site. Um, two of the nights after reading your book, I woke up screaming. I'm not even uh, – that is not an exaggeration. Hmm. I woke up in my bed screaming, and my wife was like, I can't read that book. And I'm like, I don't know if I can read this book because it is so – it's so visceral and it's so yes. painful. And I wonder if you've had a lot of that. Have you had people say, I love that you wrote this book, but I can't read that book? Uh, yes. And, and I've had sort of uh, all the various iterations of that reaction as well. Um, both people saying, um, you know, that the book is too personal for them. Uh, but then also sort of the people who are, uh, it, it is a tough book to read, um, but the, sort of the uh, I have been surprised at the number of people who are saying, like, as tough as it is, you know, I, I can't stop reading it. Um, you know, I, I read it in, you know, a day or two or three. Um, and that, you know, there is something about reliving that day uh, that I think remains very visceral for the people who lived that day in the first place. It's interesting because 9-11 for me has always been one of those things where I want to look away and can't look away. Like I will, I will mm -hmm. finish your book. I'll start reading more of it tonight. It's really hard. It's like punching a bruise a thousand times, but I also feel almost a responsibility to read your book. What was it like for you spending a year of your life deep diving into something so absolutely awful? Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, there's sort of a couple of things that stood out for me. One is, um, you know, it was a uniquely challenging book to write emotionally. Um, yet at the same time, I was really surprised at the extent to which, as sad as the book is, it, it also has a great deal of sort of hope and inspiration in it that it, there's, um, you know, I, I think sort of collectively the book is actually a, an amazing testament to this, the resiliency of the human spirit um, and, you know, the, the, the sort of raw humanity uh, 
and, and the way that people react under tremendous pressure to unprecedented circumstances. Um, it, and the way, you know, the way that sort of people helped each other that day, um, I, I found really inspiring. Um, and that's true with the first responders in New York. Um, that's true with the military officers uh, in the Pentagon who rushed out of the burning building and then turned around and rushed back into it when they realized that their colleagues and comrades uh, were still trapped. And, you know, that's true with, um, you know, ordinary coworkers that day, too. I mean, I sort of tell the incredible story in the book of John Abruzzo who's a quadriplegic working with the Port Authority and, you know, the 12 of his colleagues who carried him down 64 flights of stairs that day uh, in the World Trade Center to ensure that he lived. Going back to your sort of the the core of your question and your experience as a New Yorker that day, um, to me, some of the most powerful bits of this book are this sensory experience of 9-11, um, it, you know, when we talk about the history of 9-11, we normally only are talking about uh, the sites of 9-11. You know, we are talking about the, you know, the TV pictures that we remember uh, that we all watched together that day. Um, and yet when you read these oral histories and when I was doing these interviews, one of the things that really came through was the way that this was a total sensory experience. And so people are talking about the sounds of that day, the taste of 9-11, the way that 9-11 felt to the touch, those details that sort of really made that day come alive for me. I thought it was really, really interesting how people remember what they were reading, what they were eating, what they were watching on TV, something in our brain. I don't know when there's a traumatic or huge event freezes in time, little things like I was I was having a bagel from Dunkin' Donuts, or I was on page six of the New York Times. I, I thought it—I've never thought of that before. The layer of memory that comes with a tragic event, and I think that that's why, to me, it was so important to tell this story in the voices of the people who lived it. That, uh, as I was saying, like the part of the challenge of this is that we tell ourselves this much neater and cleaner version of history when we talk about 9-11 as history. You know, we talk about it in the context of, you know, the four planes, you know, it begins at 8.46 in the morning, it's over at 10.29 with the collapse of the second tower. Um, But that's not the way that any of us lived 9-11. You know, we didn't know when it began, we didn't know When it was over, we didn't know what was coming next. We didn't really even understand what had transpired at the end of 9-11. You know, we sort of didn't. There there were so many rumors over the course of that day, the car bomb at the State Department, the crash in Cleveland, the crash at Camp David, which is the way that the Flight 93 crash was actually first reported, was as a attack on Camp David, not uh, on an empty field in uh, outside Shanksville. And so, uh, you know, the trying to recapture that day to me, you can really only do it, I think, effectively through the way uh, of oral history, you know, just telling that day as people lived it, as people experienced it. Like, did you pitch the idea as an oral history from the very beginning? Yes. Um, it grew out of a 
piece that I wrote in 2016 for Politico that was uh, an oral history of being aboard Air Force One on 9-11, which is where the title comes from, The Only Plane in Mm -hmm. the Sky, a reference to sort of the end of the day when the Air Force One is headed back to Washington and is literally the only plane left in the sky in North America uh, after everything else had been grounded. And that, to me... Uh, the reaction to that story was really fascinating. Um, that published for the 15th anniversary in 2016. And I just got a tremendous uh, and almost instantaneous reader reaction, um, including sort of two veterans uh, who, who wrote me. One, a mother um, who said that, that she had printed out the article in order to uh, in order to someday be able to sit down with her kids who were then seven and nine and talk to them about why mommy had left them to go off to war. Wow. And then the second was another veteran who was younger, an army guy uh, who'd done three tours, two in Afghanistan, one in Iraq. And that he had, uh, he had written in to say that he'd been in middle school on 9-11 and that he had never really understood the national trauma that the country experienced until he had read that article about seeing the day through President Bush's eyes. And that to me was sort of, both of those reactions were incredibly powerful as a way to think about how important it was to keep the memory of 9-11 alive for a future generation and and to sort of recapture not just the simple history that we tell ourselves about that day, but the, but the real history of living that day. Do you think it's depressing that, um, or is it just what it is? Like I have a 16 year old daughter and I asked her on 9-11 when she came home from school, how much people were talking about it. And she said there were kids who had completely forgotten it was 9-11 and now they weren't born when it happened. Um, is that depressing or is that just how history works? Well, I think it's sort of how history works. Um, and it, you know, it, I, I have a, a one-year-old daughter, um, and for her, nine eleven will be as removed historically as the John F. Kennedy assassination was right. for me as a child born in the 1980s that, you know, it, it will just sort of feel like this thing of old history. The difference being um, uh, that, you know, this is a generation that is still going to be living with the world of 9-11. And that when you sort of look at the way that, you know, this year, the 18th anniversary marks this shift, I think, nationally in, in our consciousness from memory towards history – um, you know, you're beginning to have college students who were born after 9-11. You know, we're deploying for the first time American servicemen and women who are uh, uh, who, who are being deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight in a war that is literally older than they are. Um, you know, this this is uh, this is a tough thing to to try to sort of wrestle with how we want to remember. I want to get a little geeky because I am very geeky when it comes to writing. When you are when you are doing a book like this, and there are so many interviews that have been archived uh, and people's stories have been archived. When you listen to their stories, do you then want to talk to them yourself, 
or are the archived interviews good enough for you? Like, who are you looking to talk to versus who are you content with? Okay, they told their story. I'm just going to use it that way. Yeah. So I, the, the book is a mix of original interviews and stories that I collected and then uh, sort of uh, an incredible trove of archival oral history work um, that has been done by institutions like the 9-11 Museum uh, in New York, the Flight 93 National Memorial in Shanksville, the Pentagon Historian, the Capitol Hill Historian, the 9-11 Tribute Center, um, Story Corps, a number of other institutions like that. And one of the things that so uh, all told, um, I had a, a researcher who was working with me on the book who did a lot of the sort of archival digging to help collect some of these stories. And we found about 2,000 that we that we found about 5,000 total across the country, about 2,000 of which we sort of really dove into. Um, the final book contains about 480 voices Um both original and and archived, and uh, and there weren't that many people who I found oral histories from that I went back and did supplemental interviews with. What was sort of more common was uh, I did a lot of interviews around parts of the story that were not well documented by others. Um, the President's Day aboard Air Force One, the Vice President's Day in the White House bunker, um, where actually there weren't that many people who had ever recorded interviews speaking about that time in the day. And then there would be like very specific moments, like Porter Goss was the congressman that day who gaveled Congress closed uh, on the morning of 9-11 and sort of suspended Congress. And actually no one had ever spoken to him. So I had this wealth of great reports from from Capitol Hill, of people uh, who worked in various offices, from the leadership of Congress that day, but no one had ever spoken to Porter Goss. So, you know, I had to track him down just to get that one bit of the day where he talked about uh, what it was like to close Congress on 9-11. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who is the world's biggest Backstreet Boys fan. So Casey, why do you like the Backstreet Boys? They're like my age. Kevin is so mysterious. No, he's not. And Brian smells like blueberry muffin straight out of the oven. You're getting super weird. And AJ sings like a combination of Willie Nelson and Donny Osmond. All right, that's not even slightly true. You wouldn't understand true love. Oh, I know true love because this podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. And you know why I want it that way? The hats, the t-shirts, the sweatshirts. And you know how you can quit playing games with my heart? By going to 503-sports.com and buying me a Raymond Chester Oakland Invaders jersey. And you know how you can show me the reason for being... Enough, enough. I get what you're saying. You do? Yes. You think Howie is the one for me. I agree. Ugh. Are there people when you call it like a crude example? I wrote a, bi a biography of Barry Bonds, the former baseball player. And, um, you know, you call people, I don't want to fucking talk about Barry Bonds. I hate Barry Bonds. Or I, you know, I don't, I have nothing to say about Barry Bonds. You know, like there's a lot of, I have nothing to say about blank. When you were calling people to speak about 9-11, do you get a fair number of people who are, were so traumatized, so heartbroken by it that they don't want to talk? Or do the vast majority 
want to sort of express their thoughts on it? Uh, the latter. Um, I, I was actually quite surprised that, uh, at how willing people were to talk about that day, to share their thoughts and feelings about that day at a very you know, I- intimate and sort of heart-rending level as, for most of them, a total stranger calls them up out of the blue and asks them to talk about the most traumatic day of their life. Um, they were, by and large, quite willing to do so. I just want to, I wrote a piece for Sports Illustrated in the week after 9-11. And I called, it was a, a kid who died who was a basketball player at Columbia named Tyler Ugolin. And um, we were doing an issue, and I was really upset about it because I thought we shouldn't be doing an issue, but we were doing it. And I found a kid, and I, uh, I called his home. It was probably three days after 9-11. And I asked to speak to someone, and his dad got on the phone, and he told me he wouldn't talk. I can't talk. It's too hard. And then um, he called back like 10 minutes later and he's like, I don't know if I want to be, I don't know if I want to be quoted, but can I just tell you about my son? I mean, I've speaking yeah. for probably 40 minutes and ended up being one of my, the most meaningful stories I've written. He didn't know me. You know, I was a total stranger and he's telling me all about his son who died three days earlier. I haven't given this that much thought. How, how do you explain the desire of people like you just said, sort of unload on a complete and total stranger with a microphone? Well, I think for this, um, it, it is because it is a moment where people think it really is important to tell tell their own story for history. That sort of people understand that there is this uh, you know much larger backdrop to the events that they lived through, that these were, you know, simultaneously personal experiences and a national experience and the need to sort of keep that memory alive and and to, to ensure that future generations really do understand this. When you have 500 interviews that you're dealing with from uh, various sources, how are you organizing? I mean, it's a basic journalistic question. How are you organizing everything and how do you know what to use, when to use, and as far as doing an oral history? How do you know you have the order right? How do you know you're touching the right tone? Like, I've, I've never even attempted an oral history, certainly not one of this depth. It just seems uh, terribly overwhelming in many ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing with that make organizing this one a little bit easier is there is such a strict chronology to just following the day. And so... Uh, you know, I, I think in some ways it would be much harder to write oral history in this style if you were writing about something that was more thematic than than this one is. But, you know, the, this was a project that was rooted in chronology and it was rooted in place. And so, you know, w- what I was basically doing was reading through each of these oral histories, um, uh, highlighting the quotes that seemed most relevant, most impactful. And then, you know, once I had done, you know, everyone at the Twin Towers or everyone in the Pentagon, uh, you know, then beginning to sort it, you know, by time over the course of the day uh, and trying to, um, you know, tell a story that, uh, you know, in some ways I hope that you can sort of as important as the individuals are to this book, I, I hope that you pe- people can read it and, and understand it also as you know almost an impressionistic version of 9/11 unfolding. That it is an opportunity to look at you know 9/11 through um, you know what it, 
or ultimately the 480 voices, I think it ends up being about three or 4,000 individual quotes and, you know, see it sort of as almost a pointillist or impressionistic view of the day. Do you print everything out? Like when you are you literally going through with a highlighter and a you know and a piece of paper? Uh, no, I, I I actually I um I tried to do as much as I could on the computer, um and uh, I ended up uh the, I mean, it, and and by the way like the first draft of this book uh, was literally twice as long as the finished version, um and you know it was. Uh, you know, sort of six months of intense drafting and then six months of um, very intense um, uh, uh, editing to sort of bring it down. Wow. When you um, when you were selling the idea, when you were shopping the idea, was this a hard sell or an easy sell? Um, it, it, well, it was it, it was very easy because uh, it, uh, it was sort of looking at the, uh, you know, I had the original Politico magazine piece as the core of the idea. And um, it will be, you know, it, so it was sort of natural to imagine how it could be expanded into a full book of the day. Back in the day, I, my, I had this idea of writing a, a, a thorough, detailed you know, 500 page OJ Simpson biography. You know, my wife kept saying it's so depressing. Like who wants to read an OJ Simpson biography? It's like the most depressing story of all time. And I thought there was a good point to that. But it seems like you're, I, I just feel like your book, I guess there's something about the weight of 9-11 that transcends, God, this is going to be a really sad read. Yes. And I think that it's a, you know, it is an incredibly sad book, but one where the power of the subject and the the impact of the people who lived it, um, you know, outstrips the the sadness in some way, um, and that it sort of remains a book that is, uh, you know, something that people are actually quite eager and interested to read and process. Uh, because they can r refract and reflect their own memories uh, of that day as as they read. Is it okay for you to interview someone from 9-11, someone who lost whatever, a parent or a spouse, um, and, I don't know, show emotion, shed a tear while you're talking to the person? Like, are is that is oh yeah I, I don't think there's any other way listening to these stories uh, particularly firsthand is just unbelievably powerful and you know I think it um, it, it's something that you you know there's there's no way to escape escape the human reaction to it what was the moment for you like what if you could pick a single moment from your reporting that really sort of punched you in the gut as far as the sadness and emotion and weight of it all what would that be um, well, I mean, my honest answer is I, I cried, you know, almost every single day when I was uh, or, or got choked up, you know, almost every single day when I, I was drafting this and, and reading these oral histories. Um, you know, there there are so many different ways to to be moved by these stories. I mean, the the, the bravery on display that day, the the strength, the uh, on display that day, the love that was on display that day is, as you look at these transcripts uh, and, and the voices of people's final telephone calls from the Twin Towers or the hijacked planes to loved ones, um, you know, the loss uh, of that day of, of um, 
you know, spouses, children, parents, um, you know, sort of people uh, wrestling with with both the unknown of the missing and then the realization um, of the loss. Um, and, and then, you know, you, you also uh, just have, um, you know, one, one of the really big themes that comes through to me in the book is the way that people lived lived or died that day because of incredibly minor life choices that in the grand scheme of things are utterly meaningless sort of the types of things that we make a thousand times a day you know when to run an errand when to get a cup of coffee um you know when to place a telephone call what flight to take what train to catch and ended up that day having real outsized impact on whether someone lived or died. Um, you know, Michael LaMonaco, the chef at Windows on the World, who that day, uh, you know, would have normally been at his um, at his kitchen by 830 in the morning and instead stopped to buy a new pair of glasses at LensCrafters on the way up to uh in the basement of the shopping concourse of the World Trade Center and so missed the last elevator to the top and 72 of his colleagues died that day and he didn't. What does that do to a person? Like, what does that do to him? You do see in a lot of these oral histories, um, you know, some real survivor's guilt. I mean, people sort of struggling with why they survived, um, how they survived, that, you know, um, people who got separated from co-workers in the stairwells and, you know, lived when the people that they got separated from didn't, um, it, you know, it, it is incredibly hard, uh, for some of these people to, to understand why they survived and when, why they didn't. Um, and, and you see people sort of struggle with survivor skill. You see people struggle with PTSD, um, and, and that, in some ways, is is why for so many of the people in the book, you know, nine eleven is still a uh, present and clear part of their lives. It's a very interesting book from a promotional standpoint. You know, usually when you promote a book, there's a level of sort of Barnum and Bailey-ness to it, where you're hyping it up and you're kind of getting all energetic and you're, you know, you're looking for that big moment. And it seems like you, your book is so, it's such a heavy subject, it seems like you have to walk really carefully in promoting it. Am I wrong in that? There's a, it just seems like it's a different approach to promoting a book than the normal biography of an athlete or singer or even a political figure. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's even a different way that you talk about it as a writer. You know, I've been sort of struggling to figure out what the right way to say to, uh, what is the right reading experience I want to impart onto readers um, because, you know, you, your gut as a writer is always to say, you know, something along the lines of, I, I hope you enjoy this. Or, um, right. you know, my, my last uh, book, you know, when I was signing books, you know, I would always say happy reading exclamation point. And, you know, this is obviously a subject where uh, neither one of those is the sentiment that anyone has reading the book. Yeah, it's really fascinating. You, uh, you and I had a similar experience, which is um, Amazon ran out of your book. And <laughs> to me, all right, so this was my reaction. I, I had a book. It was selling big. 
And one day people start, you know, emailing me, hey, can't get your book on Amazon. They ran out. And then I email Amazon. And of course, they don't really care that much because Amazon is this huge company. And we will have your book in. And it was like four weeks from then, you know, and then eventually it got fixed. But the author horror of Amazon running out of your book, um, what was what was that like for you? It was it was almost expected, um, <laughs> and, and you know it is uh, a, a good it it is a uh, annoying but good problem to have as a writer um, to a- end up with a book that's going into additional printings, um, and uh, you know I uh, I'm hoping that very soon the book will be back in stock on Amazon and <laughs> people will be able to continue reading it. You sound like a much more calm man than I am. You sound much more, um, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, well, I, so I, I had uh, on my last book a, a much more frustrating experience wh- where due to sort of a quirk in the Amazon algorithm when I was uh, promoting my last book, they actually took the buy button off the book entirely, oh. which was very heartbreaking and I was very upset about. Um, and this is uh, this is a less bad problem than that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you something that's been on my mind a lot. And, and you were the first person who's, who, with a deep knowledge of 9-11, I can ask this of. Um, you know, Donald Trump has said repeatedly he was at ground zero. He said he helped with the recovery. He said he sent hundreds of men down to help with the recovery. He said he gave a million dollars to the 9-11 funds. He took money from the uh, small business uh, fund, you know, to help small businesses that were impacted by 9-11. It seems like none of this stuff is true. And as a New Yorker who was there at the time, it, uh, to me, it, it's so jarringly wrong and immoral, and nobody really seems to care. What am I missing? Uh, you are not wrong. Um, there is very little that the current president has said about 9-11 that there is much evidence to believe actually transpired. Um, uh, yet at the same time, I think sort of part of the challenge of it is, you know, this is someone who uh, has a default tendency to lie about all things, whether they are meaningful or not. And so, you know, I, I don't know why we should necessarily be surprised that he has lied about this as well. But I don't understand what happened. Like, I actually don't. I mean, I remember, like, I mean, you lived it. Howard Dean lets off an awkward yelp. And that's a death knell to him. Or, you know, George Bush uh, mispronounces nuclear and people are all over him for it. Like what I'm actually being serious, like as a guy who covers politics. And I don't even yeah. mean this specifically about Trump. I just kind of, like what has changed that you could lie about being involved in the greatest tragedy in modern history and eh, not a big deal. Um, it, yeah, but I think it I think it is indicative of this larger fissure within American politics and the Republican Party specifically, where if you lie without shame in the way that Donald Trump does, uh, then it sort of turns out that there's almost no recourse or consequences in the modern political system, that the sort of Republicans have decided that they are on board uh, 100% no matter what. And that, you know, there is no bridge that is too callous for them to cross, that they um, are not willing to embrace and back the president's views. Well, I just want to say, first of all, your book is beautiful. Whoever designed your cover, 
did a beautiful job. The weight of the book is amazing. It is a heavy book that isn't as big as it feels heavy and it feels perfect. I mean, everything about this book is packaged well, did an amazing job. I mean, I just think considering the weight of the subject, the sensitivity of the subject, the difficulty of the subject, the emotions of the subject, I just think you've done a really masterful thing here. I hope you are able to take, as weird as it sounds, take satisfaction and some pleasure in doing a really good job. Yeah, and and I should give sort of credit to the folks at Simon Schuster and Avid Reader, my imprint, for for putting the book design together. And then I, I should also uh, say, um, you know, as much of a fan as I am to the tactile experience of the hardcover. Um, they did an incredible, breathtaking job with the audiobook as well. The, that if you are someone who you likely are, if you are listening to this, who likes podcasts, um, the audiobook is read by a full cast of 45 voices, um, including some of the actual people from 9 11, the White House Chief of Staff Andy Card, the. Um, the the pilot of Air Force One and uh, in ABC News's Ann Compton, and it includes original audio from that day and the original tapes of nine uh, eleven from the air traffic controllers that day, and it is just an incredible uh, audio experience, the likes of which I've never actually seen in an audiobook. You know, Garrett, I don't want to brag, but um, my my last book was about the United States Football League, which Donald Trump was an owner, and the audio came out. And the guy who read it probably mispronounced 25% of the names in the book. So <laughs> mine is also a unique listening experience because you never know what name is going to be said. So we both have that going. <laughs> Listen, Garrett, seriously, thank you so much for doing this. And, and uh, you know, congrats on an amazing, amazing book. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate the chance to talk about it with you. I want to thank today's guest, Garrett M. Graff, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Garrett on Twitter at... Vermont GMA, and visit his website at garrettgraff.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.